Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Academic Life. This is the podcast for your academic journey and beyond. I'm your show host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Director Deborah Jackson Taffa, who is the author of the new memoir, Whiskey Tender. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Thank you for having me, Christina. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about Whiskey Tender. Before we start uh, talking about the book, will you please tell us about yourself? Yes. My name is Deborah Jackson Taffa, and I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I am the director of the MFA in Creative Writing at the Institute of American Indian Arts. I grew up in the northwest corner of the state in Farmington, New Mexico, which um, encapsulates most of the setting in the memoir. I am a citizen of the Quetzal Yuma Nation which is um, in the vicinity of Winter Haven, California, across the river, the Colorado River, from the town of Yuma, Arizona. Um, I was born on that reservation, and I lived there until I was about six when we moved to New Mexico, which um, is the home of my other tribe, which is Laguna Pueblo, which is west of Albuquerque. I earned my MFA in creative writing at the University of Iowa in Iowa City. And prior to moving to Santa Fe, I taught creative nonfiction at Webster University and Washington University in St. Louis. And I was also an executive board member with the Missouri Humanities Council, where I was instrumental in creating a Native American heritage program in that state. Um, I am a mother with five children and two grandchildren. And today I am um, calling from the traditional homelands of Native Hawaiian people on Oahu, where um, my grandchildren live. Their father is Native Hawaiian. So I'm very happy to join you today and thrilled that you are interested in hearing more about my memoir, Whiskey Tender. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Part of what you just shared uh, takes us into the beginning of Whiskey Tender. But I wonder if we could unpack that a little bit and talk about what inspired you to write it. When I was growing up, I grew up in the 1980s. You know, it was the time of Madonna and big hair. And it was the beginning of the kind of golden Trump age. And um, it was it was just this period of like uh, Reagan and Bush senior. And I felt really out of step with American society. And I felt very invisible. There were not a lot of books, definitely not memoirs written by native women, native aunties. Um, And it was really hard for me to navigate uh, my childhood and my life without access to sort of any portrayal of myself in the media. Um, And so when I was very young, I was a voracious reader. I loved to read. And I would often reach outside of my own um, 
sort of history and cultural background to read memoirs and to read nonfiction by um, Asian writers, by Black women writers. And I remember formulating the idea when I was fairly young that it was something I wanted to do, that telling a true story about my life and about my tribal history, about my father, about my mother, about my sisters, would be something that felt very risky and scary, and but that could potentially be something very beautiful if it was done right. And I think that many of my teachers and my father, certainly, they all recognized in me that I had this storytelling ability. I was always very gifted when it came to language. My literature and English classes were my favorite classes. So I think I knew very young um, that this would come into existence, this book. But at the same time, I, I really felt that I had to live some years and experience the world and gain enough wisdom so that I could get it right. You know, it's not like writing fiction or poetry. In poetry, the poet hides behind the voice of a speaker. And in fiction, you craft characters and borrow from the truth. If you're writing autofiction, it's barely concealed, but still you have this sort of layer of deniability. And it's there are a lot of ethical considerations that go into writing a memoir. Um, there's a lot of research that has to be done. And I just really needed to wait. So, you know, I'm in my 50s now. And I throughout my life, you know, people that knew that I had this intent, that I was going to write this memoir and that it was something that I wanted to do, they would often ask, you know, you know, why is it taking so long? And I wrote this book and rewrote this book. It's it's truly a palimpsest. It has it has grown and matured with me. I was actively working on the book for at least eight years. So in answer to your question, I mean, it's kind of twofold. I think that I wanted to offer something. I wanted to generously offer something that was very honest and I wanted to be vulnerable, but I also wanted it to have a touch of wisdom that I just, you can't really fake. You know, there has to be a grace in writing it. I once heard someone say, um, to write a memoir, you have to either be able to forgive the people who have hurt you, or you have to forgive yourself for not being able to forgive the people who hurt you. And certainly this country has left me with a lot of wounds. So it took some time. Yeah. The, the book has a lot of, of research in it. You, you take us through your very early childhood, through the very end of, of high school and your plans for what to do after and in real time, as you're going back to your child self, there's so much of your personal family and your ancestral history and how that ties into U.S. government decisions that you were never told. In order to go back and weave that in, you, you must have done quite a bit of research. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing was um, when I was in my 20s and I first started engaging with um, research at the Yuma, um, at the Arizona Historical Society in Yuma. I went in and I found a lot of old um, mimeograph pages of books that were not in print anymore, but that featured my grandfather and my um, great-grandfather, who were both politicians. So my family has always come from sort of a line of politicians and, and leaders. And um, so the research... In the research, I would necessarily kind of run into familiar names, you know, things, efforts that my grandparents had put forth to try to create justice on the reservation. And it was incredibly difficult in those early years to wade through. Um, I don't I don't know that people understand how hard it is to take something as simple as a history class for an indigenous child. You know, it's um you encounter so much heartbreak, so much tragedy, so much ill will that it, it really, it, it creates depression. And so I would say that those earliest years gathering that um, research and, and the information that I needed to move forward, um, it took a very long time because I would take long breaths between. It would be like I could read for an hour and then I would feel exhausted for a couple of days and then I could read a little bit more and it was just very, very tiring. Um, and, you know, I think some of what I portray in the book 
as you said, is, you know, that my parents did not share with me a lot of the tragedies um, that had befallen our people. And I think part of that was that they did not want us um, to become jaded or cynical at a very young age. Children, you know, as a parent, you kind of decide whether you're going to present your child with, you know, the firemen are good people and the policemen are good people. And, you know, the president is a hero and, you know, kind of develop their sort of optimism about what it means to be a citizen of this country and to partake in the American dream um, and sort of giving them the real story of America, which, of course, has um, darker portions to it. I think my parents really opted to kind of wait as long as they could. And that might be half of it. Perhaps the other half is that it was very difficult for them to discuss it. It was wounding for them, or perhaps, you know, that neither of them had ever finished high school. They went back and got their GEDs. They were raised in the 1950s. I think they themselves were probably ignorant about um, why the prejudice, uh, how difficult the history, all of that might have been sort of beyond their their full understanding. And so to an extent, you know, when you stretch back into the 50s and 60s when my parents were becoming adults and then into the 70s and 80s when I was trying to come of age, I mean, you, you encounter a great deal of ignorance because of the assimilation policies that the government put forth. And you find people that are blind to their own histories and it's like the blind leaving, leading the blind, you know? And if you have... Um, a lot of white teachers with a white curriculum, um, you just don't gain access. You have to be willful and go out and search for it if you want to see who you are clearly and you want to understand your history clearly. It takes sort of a, a determination or perseverance that not all people have. And so I hope that answers your question. It, it does. You, you tell us towards the end of the book... Um, you bring us into a conversation you have with your mother and then with your father that she was trying to protect you by all she kept silent. Mm -hmm. And your father hoped that the way that white people thought that you passed would protect you from having to know more. Yeah, you know, I think it's, you know, in my mother's culture, because my mother grew up in Socorro, New Mexico, and so, you know, it, her family, had, they've done DNA tests now and they know that they are 50% indigenous. New Mexican people are, we have a lot of indigenous bloodlines in what we would call Hispanic or Chicano communities in New Mexico. My mother's last name was Lopez Herrera. Her mother was a Lopez. Her father was Herrera. And um, I think that she, she wanted to protect us, but she also had some shame about... Um, claiming her indigenous um, ancestry. You know, it was something, it's something that's very common in the Southwest, the, the history of slavery. And my father, I think for him, you know, his parents, they came together with two different tribal languages. So his mother, my grandmother Esther spoke Laguna Pueblo Caris, and my grandfather spoke Quetzan, Yuma. And at home, they spoke English. And it was kind of the viewpoint for a lot of people in that era, in my mother's house too, her parents spoke Spanish, that the children were really made to learn English and they didn't want them to learn um, either Spanish or the indigenous languages because it would create um, sort of a, an accent or a perception in society that might hold them back. And it's easier for us today, I feel like, to see, you know, why we should preserve culture. Um, back then, you know, it was it was pre-civil rights. It was the era when there were lynchings and very real racism. And it could mean the difference between um, safety in society and danger in the world to be perceived as more assimilated to be perceived as adjacent to white is was something that wouldn't only help you financially, but that might even help you in terms of um, helping you avoid trouble, helping you avoid violence. Um, and so 
I think that both of my parents, because we grew up in a very, you know, the background for this is a very, very violent town in New Mexico that was actually being um, investigated by the Civil Rights Commission because there were so many random um, attacks against Native people. My parents were very concerned about our safety. And so part of it was emotional. Part of it was trying to kind of assimilate us into society so that we could grow up and go to university and have good jobs and escape this incredible poverty that both my parents grew up in. So my mother was one of 15 kids and my father was one of 10 kids. And when we talk about poverty in their childhood, we're talking about very real hunger. We're talking about very real cold um, and all of the difficult um, things you would associate with not having enough on a daily basis. And so they were very kind of, I think that they were very strategic about the way that they raised us because they didn't want us to suffer. And so, you know, part of what I wanted to do in the book, because I think it's very easy to sort of judge people and say, well, they left behind so much. They were social climbers. They wanted to escape this sort of Indian status, all of that comes off as something very negative. But until you have lived a life like my parents lived growing up, until you know what it's like to kind of, you know, make your fists into balls and press them into your stomach and lay on your belly at night so that your stomach won't growl, you know, you don't really know what sort of um, bargain they were making, you know. And as a child, all I could see was that they were incredibly strict very, very invested in me coming home with a report card that had straight A's. They wanted me to speak and enunciate my words very clearly. They wanted me to be clean and present myself and be polite to elders. It was a home in which the rules were um, overwhelming and it was very tiring for me, you know. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As we've touched on, themes threaded through the book are uh, identity loss, land loss, job loss, family separation, language loss. But equally threaded through the entire book is a reclamation story. Mm. Um, Do you want to talk about how um, the working opportunities and the environmental issues are, are really, they're not symbolically in your father, but they're in a way, his story illustrates what that what that is. Yeah, the the reclamation, the the relationship between me reclaiming culture and my father's job. Are you looking for that? Is that the question? I think so. Yeah, you know, I think there's the sort of truism where they say, you know, your first level of of achievement has to really be kind of your basic needs. You know, you can't think of becoming an artist. You can't think of becoming a culture bearer until you have covered the basics that you need. So you imagine this young couple and, you know, my father had been sent to prison as a minor because of a car accident that he had. And he was, you know, inevitably scared straight by the time he was 21 and he got out and he met my mother And she, wanting to escape the poverty of a household with 15 kids, she married him. And he went through this program called, um, it was the relocation program. It was public law 959. The government created this program to train Native American people in an effort to move them off their home reservations. So we talk about the great black migration Not very many people know that there was this huge migration of Native people from reservations to urban areas between the 1950s, 1960s, early 1970s due to this government policy. So my father took part in this job training to become a welder. And certainly he was 
a, an incredibly intelligent man, very street smart. Um, and I'm convinced he could have gone, gone on to do many professional jobs. He could have had a career, actually, if he had been afforded the opportunity to go to college. And instead, he landed in this job as a welder. And of course, he worked at this power plant and he rose through the ranks because he really is an incredible um, listener and communicator. He's very clear when he speaks with people. He's very fair and judicial and he was recognized as a leader and rose in the company. Of course, this job was not his ideal job because it was a coal-fired power plant um, and he worked with all Navajo people. It was on the Navajo reservation. There were a few Apache people, Pueblo people thrown in. Um, but I know that in his mind, this was not what he wanted for us. He never wanted us to be janitors or welders, or he wanted us to move forward and become lawyers and author authors and, you know, to have professional careers. And, um, you know, I think that the level of, of, you know, when you reach this attainment level and you go to college and you are able to take courses um, and enter into libraries that have ample shelves for research on your culture, you become awakened to the idea that many of the obstacles and problems your family encountered, it didn't have to do with a failure in their character or their work ethic, or their intelligence, that there were very real systemic barriers that prevented your family from excelling. And so step one is that sort of the shame of your origin story falls away. You become empowered by the knowledge that is presented to you on these campuses. And from that point forward, many people go on to become culture bearers, to become people that are trying to revitalize their languages and their, their practices. And they go, they return to sort of their indigenous origins with a sense of pride. You know, for me, it happened before I ever went to college. And I don't know why that is. My siblings would tease me sometimes. And when we would come together on the reservation with our family and I was little, they would be like, Oh, they're taking a picture of the elders, you know, Debbie, go get in the picture. Like Dee, Dee should be in the picture because I was always as a child, I always, always venerated like our indigenous practices. And, and this isn't, you know, 2010 when it becomes popular, a lot of kids in my generation were kind of perhaps a little bit shy, more shy about wanting to kind of get involved because you're distancing yourself from what you see American society doesn't respect. But I always had some, I always found something so beautiful in sort of my elders and in the indigenous practices. And I think in that way, I was marked even as a child, you know, that I was somebody who just, this was going to be my direction. It was going to be what I wanted to do. And um, perhaps to an extent, I, as an adult, you know, I've inspired um, my siblings and my father. I have a sister who is quite a bit younger than me, and she's a baby in the book. And her and my niece, um, they're both in school at Tohono O'odham Community College, which offers free um, educational courses to indigenous people. And my father actually took his first college class at the age of 81 after the pandemic online. And he's reading books about indigenous culture through these classes at Tohono O'odham University. So, you know, it's, it's so interesting to see the world now that it's gaining in an appreciation uh, of indigenous people again, because like I said, my story was kind of situated in an era that's much different than now, like the Reagan years and the first, you know, Bush senior, those years were, um, they were just so conservative people. It was a preppy time period to be in high school, you know? And um, I definitely was kind of against the flow in that period of my life. There's a scene towards the end of the book, um, around page 170, where you go to an intertribal powwow, and it's there that you say that you feel homesick for a native culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we see the threads through the book, both through um, the way each section of the book it opens with a dream, with the way the desert landscape is both within you and around you, and your questioning of your mother's religion uh, and how different it is from your father's 
it seems like you always had a spiritual seeking. Oh yeah. You know, that's, that's always been a very big part of me. And, you know, I would say that my Laguna grandmother and my father, they're not opposed to going to mass or to church. You know, it, Catholicism in the Southwest is broad. It, it encapsulates Hispanic people and indigenous people, but there's sort of this indigenous version of Catholicism because of course, cultural backgrounds flavor any sort of religious practice that um, I related to more. It's it's more like um, libertarian theology or sort of social justice where people identify Jesus as sort of um, having been poor and aligned with lepers and prostitutes and humble rather than sort of an angry God, kind of like a God of forgiveness. Um, so you know, my father had this melding. My mother was much more like um, she was really into the dogma of the church and sort of the rule following, you know, but neither of them ever presented the world to me as something that was without sort of spirit or magic, you know, that there that there is sort of an, an infusion of spirit in trees and in the earth was sort of my father's thing. And my mother's was more like this unseen realm of heaven and the ancestors and angels, you know, but I was sort of raised in this idea that um, perhaps not uh, governed by the rules of a priest or a church necessarily, but sort of a, a, a spirituality was hugely important to me. And some of that is just trauma. You know, I know that, you, that we have that saying that there are no atheists in the foxhole. I believe that when people reach periods of death, you lose, lose someone that you really love. Um, you embark on sort of what we might call magical thinking, like Joan Didion, you know, when her husband died and she suddenly found herself thinking in less than objective journalistic terms, which is how she was known to be in the world. But we all become imaginative and inventive when we face tragedy and trauma because it's through storytelling and through myth that we enable ourselves to survive in the world. And so I guess I, I naturally sort of adapted to that, you know, that was just who I was. And I've never been, you know, none of my mother was like this incredible consumer. Like she was more, much more of sort of a at home and capitalist society than my father, who is thrilled to go around in an old truck and kind of, you know, wear beat up jeans and a flannel shirt. He was very down to earth. And my mother was kind of the shopper in the family. And again, you know, this is the time of like family ties with Alex P. Keaton being kind of the head of the young Republicans. And there was a lot of materialism in the world. And for me, I just, it didn't really appeal to me. Like the idea of owning a lot of stuff and being sort of, I don't know, pacified by, by going to the mall. It just, it didn't, it wasn't something my mom would go to the mall with my sisters and it was not something that made me happy. I was a seeker. I was always looking for something more and I, and I'm still that way to an extent, which I think probably all writers are. I mean, it's a job that makes you kind of sit at a desk and be very contemplative and um, quiet and you're by yourself a lot. So I suppose my nature has never really changed. I still am fundamentally who I was as a kid. You talked about um, magical thinking that arises from tragedy. Mm -hmm. The book takes us through a number of family tragedies. There's sudden, there's a phone call, and all of a sudden there's a the world as you knew it has changed. It seems that tragedies are unthinkable and to get through them we have to think in a new way mm -hmm. yeah no it's true i mean i guess we're no strangers to to tragedy for sure if you grew up on a reservation or adjacent to to a reservation you know it's um it's a tough life you know this uh wow like colonization has played a number on the entire planet and it's it's very tempting to feel um, sort of victimized by it. But that was something that my father always um, said that he didn't want us to do, you know, that, that we had to try hard. We had to give more than 100%, that more would be required um, by us to make our way through the world. And um, I think we all sort of, you know, like in the book, he 
I portray how he he was very demanding of us as athletes. Aside from being um, good students, he wanted us to be um, excellent softball players and we had to learn to fish and he taught me how to change the oil in my car when I got old enough. And I was supposed to really dominate on in defense on the basketball court and hit competence was really important to him, you know, and we were raised very genderless. Like we weren't taught that we could do anything that boys could do. And again, you know, this is in the 1970s. It's not that common for girls to know how to do the things that my sisters and I did. Um, And I think that a lot of that came from my father having such an incredible, difficult childhood. Like his, um, his father fell into a period of alcoholism for a while. His mother died by the time, you know, he was in his twenties, very young. His father was gone as well. He was all alone, you know, by the time he was in his fairly early twenties with a bunch of little girls to take care of. And, you know, he just always taught us that the world wasn't fair and that anything could happen. And, Certainly, I think that it has played into my life to this day, sort of as a factor of deciding where it's where my time is worth investing, because I won't be on the planet forever. Someday I will be an ancestor and I need to make up my mind about how to live each day as if it might be one of my last. And I think you know, that inevitable moment of death that will be a surprise, but also kind of like, yes, I knew this was coming all along, is always sitting out there waiting for each of us. And I think it propelled me with this book to come as close to telling stories that are very wounding and hard to share as I could. At the same time that, you know, I don't want to let go of the fact that we are people who like to laugh. You know, I think I hope one thing that readers take away from this book is that there were tragedies in my family, but there was the, an ample amount of love and laughter. You know, I, I infuse the book with humor as I see it happening in my life on the reservation and at home in the Southwest. We are people that have a good dose of sort of gallows humor, dark humor. We, um, my father laughs more than anybody I know. And I don't know anyone who had a more storied and sort of life full of struggle than him. You know, he, I just put him on the airplane to leave Hawaii this morning. And when he's here, we just giggle and have the, you know, the greatest time. And at the same time, he's like, I miss your mom, you know, because my mother died right at the beginning of the pandemic and he'll occasionally get kind of blue. But I guess part of how we react to tragedy is storytelling Part of how we react to tragedy is working extra hard and being very committed to what we're doing and why we're doing it in my family. And then another thing is just learning to kind of, you know, take things with a grain of salt, laugh. If you can find joy in something, to try to find joy in it. Another thing that comes through in the book is being really present in the moment, things are so vividly and tactilely described that it seems that part of making meaning and finding joy was really being attuned to each thing. Yeah, I don't know if, you know, I think most writers are um, observers by nature. I have often felt like I kind of stand on a threshold between worlds. You know, I'm very comfortable uh, traveling in Asia, Africa, Europe. I've traveled all over the world and I'm very comfortable at a Native American church ceremony on the reservation. You know, I just, I have these twin worlds and I stand on a threshold between the two. And I guess in that way, I never feel like I'm in the middle of the room or in the middle of the crowd. I never feel that I fit in anywhere exactly. Um, also because I'm a half breed in many ways, you know, my mother's Chicana, which I consider indigenous, but I'm not from one tribe. There are many, I have many friends who are Diné on their mom's side and Diné on their father's side. And they have this very intact idea of themselves as one culture. I'm a very fragmented person. I'm very kind of worldly and contemporary at the same time that I have this link to my grandparents and my aunts and uncles and my father who come from a very old, different world. And I think being in that position, being somebody who's positioned on a threshold, I was always 
a kid who watched. I was always an observer. And that lends itself to writing. You don't know if it's going to land in the words in a way that conveys emotion or makes the words kind of jump off the page. But when I read early reviews and they say that it's visceral writing, that it's felt writing, that's the highest compliment I can receive about the book. Like people can talk about structure, about the nonlinear um, but cohesive sort of structure, or they can talk about the history that's woven in. The highest compliment to me is that it's emotionally felt because that's my definition of art basically is you know, there's a performance of a single and individual consciousness on the page. But somehow when you hand it off to another person, when they pick it up, up off of a shelf in a library or a bookstore and they read it, that they're filled with sort of sadness or laughter or joy, or my favorite is wonder. Like, how does that happen? Like that is like, there's like an opening when you read it. To me, that's what I love when I read other authors. And I feel like there are a lot of competent writers in the world, but not everybody causes you that wonder or that joy or that sadness. And so when I was rewriting the book, part of the biggest challenge that I faced was trying to balance the desire to input information and history and research while not losing the emotional arc of the narrative story. You know, to me, if I had wanted to create a nonfiction book that was heavily history, like I love Ned Blackhawk, you know, he's a great writer. He won the National Book Award recently for his book. That's a history tome. That's not what I wanted to create, you know. Neither did I want to create a memoir that was kind of all about me and my life. I wanted it to be somewhere in the middle between having historic moments, political information about history, and also kind of rendering the very real up and down life of this kid who's trying to come to come of age in a, in a really confusing era, you know, in a small town in northern New Mexico. So thank you. The book begins when you're when you're very small and you're still out in California and then your dad your dad gets the job and so you have to move uh, to a place where you mentioned they had recently had some violent crimes and it's being investigated um, for civil rights uh, infringements and just there's an ongoing threat um, throughout your life uh, if people realize that that you are native that it immediately marks you for danger. Mm -hmm. Um, The police may harass you. Teachers may intentionally hold you back because they don't see you as someone who should have success. Mm -hmm. The book really uh, takes us through your adolescence and your coming of age. And in that way, it's a universal story that looking for identity is that part of what you hoped would bring us all into understanding a story that even if it's different than ours? Yes, yes. You know, the thing is that there are not that many Indigenous memoirs out there. Um, There are not that many Indigenous memoirs written about women and definitely not from my generation. You know, we had this period of time in the 80s and 90s, or I would say the 90s mostly and early 2000s, when um, Sherman Alexie kind of took over the field and it, it felt like people said, oh, we have our indigenous storyteller. This is it. You have old, older than him. You have Louise Erdrich and Leslie Mormon Silko. You have a lot of writers and younger than him. You know, you have Chelsea Hicks and you have Oscar Hokea and Tommy Orange. But during Sherman's reign, right, and I'm his, we grew up at the same time. He was kind of it. He was the big name, you know, for our generation. And so for many years, I felt like there's this gap in publishing. And that gap is Generation X. You know, that's my generation. And, you know, it was this really great era of like new wave music. And, you know, we discovered that the ozone layer had a hole in it. And like I said, it was kind of the rise of the Trump era. It was like, it was this really... But, you know, everybody knows the 80s. It's like, you know, we had The Cure and we had um, The Smiths. And, you know, I was part of that, obviously. I think people kind of separate and think, well, Indigenous people 
they, they, you know, they have these tropes and these stereotypes about commodity cheese. And I thought, well, you know, actually we had this big 12 seater van and we went to the mall on weekends and we played Atari and my dad gave us quarters and we went to the arcade and we went to dance to, uh, you know, like I said, the cure and the Smiths at these little clubs and my sister would go skiing in Durango. And it was, it's, it's a story that I feel like, um, is timely and we deserve to have it told and it shows how we're both American and sort of other trying to find our way. And, um, I think that there is a lot that, that readers, um, can, um, sort of identify with because it is a coming of age and an identity story. And in that way, it could be a story about a kid trying to figure out how to tell his parents that he's gay, or it could be a story about, you know, uh, an immigrant, because in many ways we are immigrants. We migrated, we're migrants, I should say. We migrated from the reservation to many cases, people go to urban centers. My family happened to go to a small town that was very Navajo and sort of Texas oil filled people. You know, and back to the violence in that town that you mentioned at the top of this question, you know, there's a connection as well to our current murdered and, you know, um, the indigenous women who are disappearing. Um, because we know that a lot of times uh, those crimes happen in areas that are rural, that are small town America, near where there are oil fields or coal mines and um, girls get picked up by these men who are working in these male-only industries, many times kind of excavating natural resources, and perhaps they don't have their family and they're lonely, and the crime happens in those regions, you know? And that was one of the most kind of keenly felt dangers that I felt in my hometown. I was always afraid of being out on a hike in the sandstone cliffs outside of town where I love to spend time and seeing one of those oil field trucks pass by, I would go and hide because I knew that it was dangerous, you know? And so I think there are, there are threads of that in the story as well, that sort of, we think about violence as being kind of one size fits all. And often that looks like police officers in big cities when um, small town America has sort of, there's a little bit of nuance and there's some differences in the way indigenous kids encounter violence. A lot of times when there's a violent crime in the foothills outside of a small town like Farmington, there are no witnesses. And in a city, you know, it's on a city street, maybe somebody starts to film and they post it on TikTok or on X or on Facebook and everybody can see that this is happening. Well, when you are in the middle of a canyon near a dirt road and some guy whistles at you and you run, you know, you know that if you get caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, there will be no witnesses. Maybe they will never find you. And that's what we see with the murdered and missing indigenous women movement is sort of a push to become more aware of that. And I hope that the book sort of highlights that for readers. In the beginning of the book, it highlights the safety concerns of your of your parents as you come of age we realize the safety concerns for you especially once you can drive you're out driving and there are some teenage girls your age and you stop to pick them up um and we realize now that you're the age where this is not the concern so much is, is your dad going to get home safe? Is your mom okay? But are you going to get home safe? Are girls that you don't even know going to get home safe? Is your sister all right at college? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There, you know, there, there's this way in which young kids watch the rebellion of their, the adults in their lives. Right. So I saw my father and his brothers and they were all very rowdy and probably I don't even portray the full extent of their rowdiness in the pages. I mean, I have published things where editors have said, you realize that you say that your uncle Gene raced the, the train more than once because of this plural at, I'm like, yes, I realize they were really, really rowdy. Only, you know, I think a lot of times it's tempting for kind of mainstream society to look at that sort of rebellion and see it sort of as an empty, um, 
self-loathing or some sort of a, you know, kind of it's a degenerate thing. I always saw it sort of as political protest. Like it's a very inept form of political protest, but I asked myself at a very young age, like what sort of forms of, what forms of rebellion matter? Like how in the world is an indigenous girl do you shout loud enough to be heard about this thing that has happened, this horrible injustice that has befallen everyone you know, everyone in your family, all of your relatives, everybody's in some form of protest. And and sometimes that protest hurts, you know, it kind of rebounds on you and it hurts you because it takes the form of driving your car really fast or drinking and driving or, you know, there are so many different ways to kind of shout and try to be heard. And, you know, inevitably, I feel like me and my sisters, we did, maybe not my younger sister, Monica, she was a little more responsible. Um, She did act out some, but my older sisters, they definitely, you know, they were rowdy. And I kind of tried to follow in their their footsteps for a while as well. And, you know, you have memories where you think, how did I make it home safely that night? And certainly I knew girls that didn't, like the two girls that you're talking about. Who, um, the first time I met them, actually, in the book, I portrayed as um, not having met the third, but I did meet the third girl at one point, um, and it didn't fit for the arc of the book, but she ended up dying. They hitchhiked, and the truck they were in the back of rolled over, and she got crushed. So you just know a lot of people who are injured and hurt because they can't find a way to protest that is healthy. And, you know, inevitably, my my forms of rebellion ended up, I left the United States and I, you know, I backpacked through Indonesia and I backpacked through West Africa, like with no money in my pocket. I, I just kind of went out in the world because I was so tired of the United States. By the time I was 19 or 20 years old, I just could not stand it anymore. I just needed to get out for a little while. I remember when I went to college, finally, I did not go back to school until I was 35. So in the book, I talk about how I I disidentified with the goal of academia because I was so angry by the curriculum in high school that they just never dealt in any any of the Native history that I really wanted to know about. It felt like such a snub that, um, I didn't end up going back to college until I was 35, but I remember when I went back and I read that James Baldwin had left the United States for a period and gone to France. And he said that he had to get out or he would have died. And I thought, oh my gosh, I didn't know that that was what I was doing, but I did the exact same thing. At the, you know, I, I worked in Alaska for a while and this is all after the book ends, but I worked in Alaska, I worked in Maine, I worked as like a maid and a cook, and I did all these jobs until I got enough money. And then I flew to Indonesia and I backpacked through Sumatra, Java, Bali, I went to West Africa. I traveled and it was really interesting because I saw that there were many people in the world who um, had the same, you know, they had in common with me the fact that their culture had been colonized and that they had lost their life ways, their language, their food ways, their land. And it made me feel much less precious about everything that I had lost because I thought, well, there are so many of us that are in the same situation. And my situation, it's like my my father said, you know, he tried to tell me my whole life I could make of it whatever I wanted if I just kept my head down and worked hard and didn't become too hurt by the sort of oppression or by the prejudice that I would randomly encounter. The hard thing about prejudice as a kid is that you can be happy one moment and it's just so random. You know, there are a lot of nice people in the world. And so you develop a way of trying to trust and then you encounter somebody who's not trustworthy and they say something that's very hurtful. And then the next 10 people you meet are very kind and they're very helpful and they they seem nice. And then you meet somebody else. So my father always used to say, you know, you have to expect the highest good out of people. Never become the type of person that can only see the negative in others. You can only anticipate the negative because there are a lot of good people in the world. And he was adamant about that throughout my childhood. And I think it really helped me because you have to be able to trust. You can't become cynical or, you know, your life is going to end in tragedy. It sounds like a lot of the things he did when you were younger were about helping you identify the strengths within yourself and trusting yourself so that when you went forward, wherever you were going to go, whatever you were going to do, 
you knew that you could. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think self-love is probably was the harder one for me, like self-trust, like knowing, telling myself, I can see that I'm one of the smartest kids in my second grade class, or I can see that I, I can compete in this sport. You know, you start off with that. You feel you feel pretty good about yourself in terms of being able to get the job done that has been put in front of you. Then, you know, school eventually breaks you down and, and you become angry. And but it's still it's kind of easy to say, well, this teacher's an idiot. And you kind of have you feel a little superior because you think, well, they're ignorant and this nun or this teacher, they're, they're judging me, but I actually know more than they do. That's probably a coke coping mechanism that a lot of teenagers had. I I think that sort of rebellious spirit and kind of hard-headedness, I portray that as being part of my character in the book. But the harder part is not sort of the self-trust. It's the self-love because, um, you know, I, it's, it's hard to love yourself. I don't know how many people actually are very self-loving and self-accepting. I think we find ways to be unhappy with with who we are um, physically, emotionally. We could always change something about ourselves, it feels like. And I definitely have fallen into that pool of people where the older I get, I have to practice more self-love. And sometimes that means taking a break from work, not pushing so hard. I can burn out because I try to do too much. Sometimes self-love is just like getting enough rest the things that I have down at this point in terms of self-love are like, I have a very clean diet. I get a lot of exercise. I, um, you know, my health is very good for someone in their fifties. That's that to me signifies self-love. And that was, um, something that I learned very young by the time I was in my twenties, I was, you know, I was a vegetarian, mostly eating, um, you know, mostly not eating meat. I eat meat now, but you get what I'm saying. Like it was a lesson that I kind of became very, very, um, I, I practiced a lot of discipline with my body as a form of self-love, but it's been harder to get sort of the emotional and mental self-love in place because it's hard to understand um, how this country has treated indigenous people kind of like we're not human for so long. It makes you feel like there's something wrong with you, inherently wrong with you, you know? And so the reclamation that you talk about in the book and sort of the, the realizations that this childhood me comes to, that was really fought for as a child. But I think I say somewhere in the book that the biggest lessons you learn in life, you have to learn more than once, you know? And it's true. It's like, you have to keep reteaching yourself the biggest lessons in life because you will find yourself in a period of self-loathing and you think, where does this come from? And you have to try again to love yourself. And it, it's just like a, it's like a wave, you know, it, it returns and it returns and it returns. I tell everyone, you couldn't pay me to go back to my twenties or thirties. You could not pay me to go back to that age because it feels so much better to be where I am now in life than where I was then which was emotionally very confused and it was always really difficult. A large part of the book takes us through your teenage years. And as you mentioned a few minutes ago, in high school, your curriculum was very white centric and the books in the literature class you loved to read, but they were all written overwhelmingly by white men. Mm -hmm. um, and the history books didn't include lived experiences that were authentic or honest. Um, they whitewashed stories. Um, if there was a small section on indigenous history, they would call on you or another indigenous student as though you were suddenly a guest speaker. Yes. Um, is part of the self-love that you just talked about writing this book for the, that you needed when you were in high school? Yes. Oh, gosh. You know, it's so funny because I told you that I took, so I graduated from Iowa in 2013 and I had a draft. It was a very skeletal draft, um, but um, it took so long to finish. You know, I kept, I, I think I got my first offer of publication in 2019 from a small press. And at that time it was a collection of essays. And my agent told me, you know, we can 
send this out into the world as, as it is, but I actually think that we should rewrite it. You should rewrite it one more time and turn it into a memoir because there is a through line. If you tug on it, it's going to become apparent. And, you know, essay collections, they're not read that much. Memoir, they reach a broader audience. And what is it that you're trying to do? You know, and I thought, well, I know that the point of telling for me is indigenous kids. I knew that, you know what I mean? Inevitably, as an indigenous woman who's writing a book, you know that you're going to be overheard by all different kinds of people. And that's part of the game. You know what I mean? That's part of what you're doing. And so then I thought, well, I want to be as generous as possible. But like this story belongs to all Americans. This is not something that I should be ashamed of or that I should fear sharing. This is something that I should open up. The focus is indigenous kids. And, you know, in the beginning, I thought I was writing it for my elders and I would go and I would visit my great aunts, my grandfather's sisters, and they were all in their years moving towards dying. And we were living on the reservation at at the time my kids were in school and I was almost 30. We lived there for about two and a half years and I um, would go over and visit them and the kids would climb in the front yard in the mulberry tree that I climbed in as a kid. And I would sit on the porch and just hold my aunt's hand and we wouldn't even have to talk, you know, she would give me fuel to go back and start writing again, you know, because I was, this was a long time ago and I was already working on it in in sections. I thought it was poetry back then, but, um, but it wouldn't come together. Like when I was thinking about writing it for my elders, it just was, I didn't know what to include because of course, writing a memoir, you have all this discursive knowledge. You could add everything. And what you're basically trying to figure out is what to omit. What are you going to call from this dense lifetime of all these events, you know, what goes into the book and what doesn't go into the book. And it wasn't until my oldest grandchild was born. So I told you my daughter married a native Hawaiian. And so he's native too, and but he's native Hawaiian. And I, when he was born, suddenly everything became clear. And I realized being a grandmother has sort of upped the game for me. Like now I'm thinking, I might not make it to um, the time when my grandkids start to ask questions and have confusions of their own about what it means to be indigenous in this world. And here I'm thinking of indigenous people as a huge portion of the population of the world. I mean, there are many indigenous people on this planet, not just Northern Native Americans and Native Hawaiians are indigenous people. And he could grow up and what if I'm gone and he can't ask questions about how I survived this really fraught childhood? And um, it gained suddenly sort of a focus that it had lacked before. And then the final push was when my mother died, which was sort of this moment where I felt freed of the fear of writing about her that I had had my entire life, because in many ways I I was always afraid of my mother. You know, we had a very complicated relationship. Anybody who reads the book will find out more. But um, so it, it was kind of twofold. It was kind of stepping into this role as an elder, as a grandmother that enabled a bigger dose of self-love because it comes from knowing that you're needed. You know, your grandchild needs you in a way that their parents, they just can't fulfill that role. You know, I have often thought that my life would have been different if my grandma Esther had lived longer because she was such a gentle, kind force in my life. She was the adult for me as a child. And she died when I was so young. My my childhood became much, much worse and more unbearable without her. Um, so it was the combination of that and then the combination of my mother dying. And when my mother passed away, I I felt like on her deathbed, I felt like there was a moment where she gave me permission and kind of let go of the control that she had always had over me. And then what happened was when I went back in for the final revision, my mother emerged on the page in greater relief than she had ever been before. She was part of the final revision as well. So self-love in terms of knowing that my identity is a historic identity and that I have a generational place in my family and a role to play that has come to fruition as somebody who has stepped now finally into an elder role. And, you know, in Native in Native America, you generally don't talk about yourself. You know, you always defer to your elders, your clans, 
I come from the Keepers of the Water Clan on the Quetzal Nation. I come from the Big Badger Little Corn Clan, Laguna. My uncle, Mike, my dad's brother was tribal president of the Quetzal Nation for eight years from 2000, 2008. My dad's first cousin, my uncle John Antonio, was the uh, was the governor of Laguna for eight years in the same time period. And, the, you know, you introduce your family first, your clans. You always make yourself small and kind of in the back. And so something happened in becoming a grandmother where I was like, suddenly I was an elder and I could afford to speak. And there could still be criticism, you know, from relatives, from people. But I feel I feel very honest about what I've done here. I feel very good about it. And I think that's the best I can hope for, you know. Not everybody is going to um, like your art when you create art. And you have to be, the most important thing is to feel that you have thought really deeply about the ethics of what you're doing and that you have put as much personal and vulnerable material in the book about yourself as you have kind of um, entrusted the, uh, the audience with, with others, you know, like if I'm going to say something about my mother or my father or my family, I have to be able to put out even more about myself. And I feel like I've put very vulnerable, personal moments about myself into the book that makes it feel sort of honest. Thank you so much for being here today, Deborah Jackson Taffa, and taking us into the inspiration for your new book, Whiskey Tender, a memoir. You've been listening to Academic Life. Please join us again. 